Well, those of you who were here with us last week, uh, you noticed two things. Number one, we had kicked off our Advent series, which is called Tune In to Christmas, where we focus upon some different Christmas tunes. And you also found out that I was under the weather. Thank you for those who have asked how I'm feeling this week. By the absence of a stool for me to sit on, you can tell that I'm feeling a little better this week. So we're glad to have you with us here again. And, and the tune that we're focusing upon this week uh, is the one that we just sang, O Come All Ye Faithful. And the purpose throughout this Advent series is to look at some of these very familiar and common Christmas carols that have such rich, deep theology. Like if you looked around while we were singing that song, you saw people with their hands raised. You saw people in, in an attitude of reflection and worship. These aren't just Christmas carols. These are truly worship songs that lead us into a deeper experience understanding who Jesus is. So understanding that, we're taking some of them in the next couple weeks here. And unpacking a little more kind of the message and the history that goes behind these. And this particular one, O Come All Ye Faithful, is an older song. It comes from the mid-18th century. It was originally written in Latin and has actually been attributed to a number of different authors. They're not quite sure really who wrote it. But historians are, are, are pretty, pretty sure that a guy by the name of John Francis Wade, who is an English hymnist, is, is the one who wrote it. And that's who it is actually uh, officially attributed to. But even his own history is somewhat disputed as far as where he was born and where he lived and things like that. So not only his song, but also his life is somewhat disputed in its origins as well. Now, the original version was in Latin, which was translated into English a number of times throughout the years. The original version had eight verses. We sing about four when we sing it at Christmas time. And the other four were omitted because they weren't deemed appropriate. Now, what does appropriate mean? It, it doesn't mean they had foul language and adult themes in them. It's not what appropriate means here. <laughs> Some of these verses had to do more with uh, things like the season of Epiphany which is just not common in a lot of other faith traditions. And so some of those verses were put aside. And the four that we have in the English translation, which actually comes from a, a guy by the name of Frederick Oakley, who was a mid-19th century uh, uh, priest. And so those four verses are the ones that we commonly sing at Christmas time here. Now, Frederick Oakley actually changed the name of the song as well when he translated it to English. He translated it to, Ye faithful, approach ye. Now, the title was changed back, obviously, because we don't know it by that title. But it's an interesting alternative. It's an interesting alternative that ye faithful approach ye. Because it does provide an accurate summary of the song's message. It does provide an accurate sense of what the call of the song's message is. The opening line says, O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. So as the song begins that we focus upon here today, it says, O come all ye Faithful, joyful, and triumphant. It's a song, it's a, it's a call to come to Jesus, to experience him, to adore him. Adore is another word for worship, to, to worship him as king of angels, as Christ the Lord. Now let's pause for a second though and consider these words. Because you look at these words, the, the faithful, joyful, triumphant, the way that they're posed here, it almost seems as though they are qualifiers to who is called. It could not be understood by looking at those words that it's saying, if you are faithful, if you are joyful, if you are feeling triumphant, you may come to Jesus. As though there's some angel bouncer at the stable door who's checking your ID before you get in to make sure you have the qualifications to come forward. 
And if this was the case, I'm not sure I'd be allowed to the party. I'm not sure I would get through that door if this was the case. I'm not sure I would be allowed to tune into Christmas today if that was the case. Because faithful, well, overall, I, I, I think I'm fairly faithful. I, I strive for integrity. I believe that my word is my bond. When I say something and I mean to do it, I tend to follow through. The vows that I made to Nadine over 20 years ago have been unwavering. I think that my my kids find me as a a safe place, a trustworthy place and home. My belief, my commitment to God, you know, like most of us, there's seasons where it's stronger than others, but, but it is always there. Yet there are times in all of these areas that I stumble. There are times in all of these ways that I, I think more about myself than about other people. And so faithfulness, I, I think so, but I don't know. What about joyful? Yeah, I, I have moments where I, I'm joyful. I, I try to be generally a happy and positive person. I, I hope people experience that. But last week I was sick. I wasn't very joyful. <laughs> I, I encounter regularly friends and people in the church who are going through struggles, and it, and it has an impact upon me. You know, this, this past week, I had a couple of really rough days with just general things going on that I was encountering. And, and it was shortly around the time that I was writing this message, and I was convicted by these words. With the words I'm going to share with you today about being joyful. But, you know, am I just saying this, or do I experience it and live it? But there are moments when joy, I, I don't know. It seems like there's moments when I can allow situations to steal it. What about triumphant? It's not a word we use very often. We don't describe ourselves as triumphant. It's not a common word or a way that we would describe ourselves. This idea of being victorious, feeling like we're in the winner's circle, that we're confident and undefeated. We probably all have moments like that, but, but it's not always the case. This past week, I was going through Facebook, I came across an article that was titled, Costco Apologizes. And so I clicked on it, and, and I don't know if you've seen the story, but the story bit was that some of the Costco's in the States that were selling Bibles had put a price tag on, and they had labeled the price tag fiction. And, and so Costco was apologizing to people for, for this error. So I was kind of intrigued by the story as I was reading through it, but then I made the mistake, as some of you probably have made as well, and I started reading the comments down below. <laughs> My gosh. Just the anger, the hostility, the mocking of Christianity that was found in those comments below. I felt kind of beat up. I felt kind of beat up in my faith. I certainly did not in that moment feel like a triumphant Christian. So clearly there must be more going on in this Christmas carol than first meets the eye. Because if this is indeed a call for us to come and experience Jesus, there's probably a lot of people like me who we, we feel like we just wouldn't qualify. If it's based upon us being faithful and joyful, and triumphant. So there must be something more going on here. But if it's a call to come and experience Jesus, then let's go and look at Scripture to see who Jesus himself called. Who did Jesus himself call to come to him? Well, one of the groups of people that he invites, we find in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. And we talked a bit about this last week, where he says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. We talked about this last week a little bit. If you missed that sermon, you can go to westmeadows.org and you can listen to it again or for the first time and hear more about this, this call of those who are weary and burdened. Briefly, as we discussed last week, that we live in a weary world. 
We live in a world where there are struggles and challenges. We will endure persecution for our faith. And that can leave us with a sense of hopelessness. But in the midst of all that, in the midst of those lives that we live, Jesus, who is the thrill of hope, can pierce that darkness and give us hope of a new and glorious day. And there's another group that Jesus calls. Jesus invites others to come, revealed early in his ministry. And this time, it's, we find this in the book of Mark and in Matthew, both record the story of a time when Jesus was walking through the region of Galilee. And looking at the Mark 2 version in particular, we're told that one day he came upon a man by the name of Levi, who was a tax collector. Tax collectors, the, these guys were despised. They were absolutely despised by their fellow Jews. You may not like the CRA that we have. You may not like the process and the amount of taxes that we pay, but compared to Levi and what they had back in that day, it was a cakewalk to live in Canada. You see, back then, these tax collectors were, more often than not, they were Jews who had decided to go work for Rome. And when they worked for Rome, they would collect taxes for Rome, and then they would add on whatever they felt appropriate for for themselves. They were looked at as traitors, and they were considered cheats. And so in the middle of a crowd who is gathered around this tax collector, Jesus walks up to Levi and simply says to him, come follow me. And scripture tells us that, that he just got up and left his table and he started following Jesus. Well, later that day, they end up at Levi's house. Levi, who would later be called Matthew when he became a disciple of Jesus Christ. And they're having dinner over at Levi's house with, with all of his tax collector friends. And, and the Pharisees see this and they look to his disciples and they they say, why, why does Jesus, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And their words just drip with contempt for Jesus, that he would do such a thing. But Jesus overhears their question, and he knows what's in their hearts, and he says this to them. He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, Jesus knows the futility of calling the self-righteous to himself. He knows the futility of calling the self-righteous to himself because those people quite often think they've got it all worked out. It's all under control. They're they're self-reliant. There's often a piousness and and a pridefulness that when there seems to be a a sense of correction, a a need for repentance, a a need to look beyond themselves, they, they sneer and they mock and they reject. But Jesus also knows the impact of calling those who realize they have a need for salvation. Those who are often weary and burdened. Those who are humble enough to acknowledge their wrongdoings. Who are humble enough to acknowledge their need for a Savior. And it is to those that we see Jesus is calling to here. But they're often also the ones who lack joy. They lack faithfulness. And they lack victory. But here's the good news. To these people that Jesus calls, to those who admit their need to be forgiven, to those who admit their need to be released from the burden of guilt and to be released from that bondage of sin, to those people who admit that need and come to Jesus in faith, Scripture tells us that he is faithful to them to make them a new creation in Christ. So that as they become new creations, the old is passed away because the new has come. And as new creations in Christ, Jesus calls to us to find our faith, to find our joy, and to find our triumph in him. Therefore, the opening words of this Christmas carol actually could be changed a little bit. They could be changed as we tune into it this week. They could be changed to something along the lines of, Oh, come all you weary. 
Oh, come all ye burdened, come all ye sinners, come all ye and behold the king of angels, adore him and proclaim him to be the Lord and the Christ of your life. And if we proclaim that, we will see that Jesus does not call the qualified, but he actually qualifies the called. Because when we respond to that call he places to us, when we come to him and allow him to work on our lives, we begin to understand that our faithfulness, that our joyfulness, that our triumph comes from him. Not from within us. It comes from him. So in the moments that we have left here today, let's take a quick look at what that means. For Jesus to make us more faithful. For him to make us more joyful and triumphant. Well, first of all, if you're taking notes, Jesus makes us more faithful. He makes us more faithful. And of all the verses that we can find in Scripture, I don't think any speaks of this better than Hebrews 12, verse 2, where it says, let us fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. As this verse declares, because of Jesus' perfect life, his ministry, his sacrifice, because he was exalted at the end of all that, he is worthy to be called the author of our faith. If you have a different version of the NIV or the ESV or the King James, you'll see different words used there. Instead of author, you might find pioneer. You might find the word founder of our faith, things like that. These are all words that are synonymous with the idea that apart from him, we would not have this faith. We would not have this faith to to experience ourselves for two reasons. The first reason being that if he had not been born, if Jesus had not lived and died and been risen again, we would have nothing to put our faith in. He is the author of our faith because if it were not for him, we would have nothing to put our faith in. Remember that in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. We've been saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, nothing that exists within ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, because if it was of us, we boast about it. But it happens apart from us. It happens because he is the author of our faith. Now, by what story? What is your faith story? But what path did you travel by which you received grace through faith? Now, everyone's story is unique. People all come to Christ through different events and different situations. For myself, it it came through the influence of of going to a good church and the influence of family. To a point where at a young age, I I prayed as a child to accept Jesus into my heart. And then later on in life, I went through a time of renewal and recommitment to really personally own that for a long, enduring faith up to this point. I've got a friend who it's different. He had been watching some people that he knew as Christians in his life. He was watching them for a while to see if they practice what they preach. And then he asked them some questions, and he heard their testimonies. And he can't really pinpoint that moment. It wasn't like there's a certain day or hour circled on his calendar. He can't pinpoint the, the time. But there was a gradual progression towards a moment where he just knew in his heart that this is true. And that he has aligned himself with it. And and he is living it and believing it and practicing it and seeing fruit come through his life that he gives credit to God and the Holy Spirit for. But, But regardless of the details of your journey, regardless of whatever your starting point was, wherever that might be, the... The events, the people involved, the revelations you received, how long it took, regardless of those things, there's a a few common points that will all be included in your story. I, I think it's safe to assume. 
is that one of those will be that there were loving, graceful people who played a pivotal role in your story. There were graceful, loving people who played a role. As you think about that, what is their name? What is the name of that person that played a role in your coming to know the Lord? But secondly, no matter where you started, what path you walked, from going from a moment of self-reliant to focusing upon Christ and putting him at the center of our lives and our trust and our faith, we've all journeyed towards the center where Christ is at the center and have placed our faith in him. Because he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. But this is not just a one-time thing. It, it goes on to a second aspect. If we understand what it means for Jesus to be the author and perfecter of our faith. Because after we receive him, after we understand him as the center of our being, of who we are, of our beliefs, of our worldview. After we receive him in that fashion, the scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit comes to live with us and in us and enable us to live by faith. Romans chapter 1, verse 17 very simply says, the righteous, those who are in right relationship with God, the righteous will live by faith. Now living by faith means that we are trusting in God's direction, in his plan. We are looking to his will. Remember, he is at the center. So it is he that is the life force behind our direction and plans in his will that takes priority. And when we live in that fashion, when we daily choose to live by faith, it's, it gives evidence of the sincerity of that initial commitment that we made. It gives evidence of that because it gives proof that it was not just an intellectual experience. It wasn't just a, a kind of a, a crowd mentality where, well, he was going forward, so I went forward. It gives evidence as we live day by day a life of faith that we were sincere in that commitment. And as we do that, we grow in our knowledge and understanding of God. We do that through the Bible, through prayer, through sharing our lives with other believers. And as we engage in those activities throughout the days of our lives, we learn a lot about God. We learn what he likes and doesn't like. We learn about his character. We learn about his promises, the instructions he's given to us, and how we can try and live those out. I'm not going to say too much more about this today because next week we're going to go into much greater detail on this exact point. But simply for today, I want to draw your attention to a passage of scripture found in the book of Hebrews where it just so powerfully supports this point of living out faith in the days of our lives. In Hebrews 11, we find these examples of faith in action from the scripture itself. Where the author, author of Hebrews starts at the very beginning. And from the very beginning, he talks about Abel. He talks about Abraham, who was called to a foreign land and went. He talks about Moses, who would not live in the house of Pharaoh, but went out, was mistreated, and decided and chose to follow faithfully to be the leader of God's people in the desert. It talks about Israel, who through faith walked through the sea when it was parted, about on faith who walked around the city of Jericho. And it goes on to talk about judges and kings and prophets and all these people that we have given to us in Scripture. Not to mention those who are in this very room who have testimonies and stories of the good things God has done in them and through them throughout their times. But these are all examples we can look to and turn to of people who have lived by faith. And by doing so, they saw and experienced and were counted among the great works that God has done throughout history. And he concludes this passage in chapter 11 of Hebrews by saying, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses... 
You ever thought about that when you come here on Sunday morning? You are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses of people who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ and have a testimony of his goodness and presence in their lives. We are surrounded by a crowd of witnesses from from history and from Scripture, but also in this very place. There's a crowd of witnesses around us. And because we are surrounded by them, let us be encouraged. Let us find endurance in that, that we may run the race that's been marked out for us. That we would run that race, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, who is what? Who is the author and perfecter of our faith. In our own strength, we will lean towards unfaithfulness. That's our default setting. On our own, we will lean towards unfaithfulness. But with the help of Jesus, we can be more faithful because he is the author and perfecter of our faith. But not only that, if you're taking notes, the second point is that Jesus also helps us to be more joyful. He helps us to be more joyful as well. Now, before I can say too much about this one, we kind of need to define this a little bit. We need to define what we're talking about. First of all, joy, as as we commonly use and as we find in the world, is, is essentially just an emotional feeling based upon circumstances. The dictionary will define it this way, that joy is an emotional response evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of having those things, the prospect of having what one desires. Technically speaking, joy, as people come to understand it, is an external stimulus, an external physical stimulus that we encounter, and then our limbic system of our brain responds, releasing chemicals into our body, which causes a physiological and psychological response. Now, that kind of demystifies joy a little bit, right? It's like when a magician shows you how he does his trick. It kind of loses the, the magic. But, but there is a science behind joy as, as we come to calmly understand it. Basically, from this description, it can be understood as a mood based upon a situation. If I'm out camping and I'm sleeping in a tent, first of all, I'm probably not very happy because I'm not very outdoorsy, as they say. But if I am sleeping in that tent and I hear a bear saunter by looking for food, my mood is going to include fear because of the situation I'm in. Last Christmas, I gave Nadine a ring that she really wanted, and she was surprised by it, and it made her very, very happy. It made her tear up a little bit. That was a mood based upon a situation. When I watched the Oilers, and they can't seem to make a clear pass on the power play for a one-timer, right? I get angry, and I yell at the TV, and my dog leaves the room, right? So... This is a true story, if you watch hockey with me. But it's a situation. It's a mood based upon a situation. And all these are just situations that lead to moods that we can define as mad, glad, sad, rad, right? And so that's joy as the world understands it. But what we're talking about here, what I want to talk to you about today is, is Christian joy, which is a little bit different. It's similar in the feeling, but it's different in the source, You see, instead of joy emerging from a physical stimulus that affects the body, which simply comes from situations alone, I want to suggest to you today that Christian joy emerges from the soul. Christian joy finds its source in the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible says that when we received Christ, that that God puts His Spirit inside of us. And that same Spirit that resides within us is the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead and produces fruit in us. And one of the fruits that we know about from the book of Galatians is joy. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that we become androids and that, that we're like, you know, if any Trekkies here where we're Vulcans, where we, we don't feel emotion. 
We're just emotionally flat. I'm not suggesting that. I'm not suggesting that we aren't impacted by the events of the world around us. We are still human. That's still a reality that we need to live with. As I said in my introduction, there are moments when I feel like situations can steal my joy if I allow them to. So I'm not suggesting that to you. Life still takes a toll on us. We are still impacted by those things. But what I do want to suggest to you is that if our joy is found and if its source is in Jesus Christ, if our joy emerges from our soul that is filled with the Holy Spirit, that even when those things happen, it cannot totally rob us of our joy. We always have something to have hope and joy in. That goes beyond. It transcends the things that we find ourselves in the midst of. And so while the world can offer moments of happiness, joy depends upon Jesus. Happiness comes from asking the question, do I like what I'm doing? Do I like what's happening right now? When my children were born, when I pick up my new car from the dealership, when I get the promotion at work, am I happy? Yes, I am. When my son dents my new car, When the other guy gets the promotion, when I go to the dentist, I don't like the dentist, am I happy? No, I'm not. But joy, as I'm trying to explain to you, that comes from Jesus, is that of which nothing in this world can steal from us. It's intended to be part of the Christian experience. It's intended to be part of the life that we live of all those who truly seek to follow Jesus Christ. And in Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, he talks extensively about this theme of joy. In in particular, one area, in chapter 3, he opens that chapter by simply proclaiming, My brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes on in that chapter to start comparing the things of the world versus life in Christ. And he says, kind of paraphrasing it, he says, I myself have more reason than most of you to brag. He says, I have more reason, I have more achievements in my life than most of you. And he goes on to recount them. He talks about being a purebred, confirmed, respected man among his people. In fact, not just respected, but of the highest religious leadership rankings. And during which time he enjoyed all the power and all the authority and all the awards of success that you would expect for somebody of that stature. However, now that he knows what it means to live with Jesus Christ. He says, now that I know what it means to have Jesus in my life, I know of his love. I know of his concern for me. I know what it feels like to have the burdens of my past wrongs forgiven. I know what it feels like to be set free from that guilt and that shame. And I know that based upon my faith in him that I'm in right standing with God. Considering all of that, well, what the world offers just pales in comparison. When I compare what I had in the world and what I have in Christ and I compare those things, the world just feels like garbage compared to the joy of having Jesus in his life, is the argument that he makes in chapter 3 of Philippians. But this is not an experience that is exclusive to Paul. It's available to all people who would choose to align themselves and live according to God's will. And it is in full agreement with what the angels pronounced to the shepherds on the night that Jesus was born. When the angels appeared in that dark night and they broke the silence and saying, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news of great joy. That is for all people. For today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, Christ the Lord. You see, the situation there evoked fear, evoked a mood. But they said, don't focus upon the mood, focus upon the presence of Jesus, which brings what? The presence of Jesus brings great joy for all people. 
So Jesus is a gift for all people who helps us to be more faithful. He helps us to be more joyful. And then finally, he helps us to be more triumphant as well. Referring to ourselves as triumphant, it's not really a common term. It's like saying, I'm a winner. I'm a victor. I'm king of the hill. I am top dog. It's just not very Canadian to say those types of things. I don't know, maybe the Americans, Luke, will be more comfortable with that, but (laughs) this is not very Canadian. Unless, however, you are the Great Cup champion, Ottawa Redbacks. Then you can say that for a couple of days. Anyways. But most of us, even if we have a healthy sense of self-confidence and self-esteem, we just don't feel that way very often. Because we know the obstacles that we face each day. We know the things that make us stumble. When we wake up in the morning, we know ourselves. We know that we have certain tendencies that we're going to bump into throughout the day, certain thoughts and feelings and temptations, and we'd rather not share those with other people because we're concerned about what they might think. So we strive to be good, faithful people. People who love God and love others. People who are committed to making disciples of Jesus. And at times, I think, I think we can be faithful at that and we can feel a sense of triumph and victory in those. But I know for a lot of us, maybe even for most of us, we often feel defeated rather than victorious. We start to put up a strong front. Those of us who were around back in the early 80s remember a, a Gillette Company commercial. They launched this hugely popular TV commercial for their dry idea antiperspirant who is one of the most popular slogans of all time, never let them see a sweat. (laughs) That sense of fake it till you make it, just have confidence regardless of the situation you find yourself in. It's somewhat artificial though. Because at times, in order for us to feel triumphant, we need sometimes to have other people in our lives to help us with that, to help us feel that way. Kind of like this little girl, who seems pretty victorious, not because of anything within her, but because she's got a crazy grandpa and she's not afraid to use him, right? (laughs) Now, I've never met this girl or her grandpa, but I believe her. I believe her. I I think she does have a crazy grandpa and I don't think she's afraid to use him. I think he's got her back. You know, in many of the battles that we may find ourselves in, we would feel more triumphant and we would feel more secure if we knew someone had our back. Well, here's the good news, folks. We do. We have a heavenly father, and we have an older brother who is always with us. Jesus Christ, who is always with us. But at times, I think we forget who he is. At times, we forget just exactly who it is that has our back. And the awesome power in the reality that he brings with him. You know, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, there was, there was a prophecy about Jesus. We find in Isaiah 9. And this is what the prophet said. He said, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His power will never end. His peace will last forever. He will rule in David's kingdom, and honesty and justice will reign now and forever. As you consider these titles that are up on the screen for you, as you consider the declarations that surround these names of Jesus Christ, I I can't help but feel this sense of triumph knowing that he is the one who has my back. 
knowing that this child born of Mary, who would come to be known as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one whom angels worship, the one whom every knee will bend and every tongue one day will confess to be Jesus Christ as Lord, is the one who is on our side. He's the one who's got our back, who is with us in force. And so considering that reality, ladies and gentlemen, I want to say to you, O come, all ye faithful. O come, all ye joyful. Come, all ye triumphant. Come and behold him who was born the king of angels. Come, let us adore him. Let us worship him. Let us acknowledge him as Jesus Christ, who is the Lord and the Savior of our lives. Not because of anything that is within us that makes us worthy. Not because of any faithfulness or joyfulness or triumph that exists within us on our own, but because he is worthy. And because when we align our lives with him, Jesus makes us more faithful and joyful and triumphant.